Anyway, um, Psalm 100. If you'd like to turn to Psalm 100, that would be really helpful. Um, this is called a Psalm for Giving Thanks. That's a title that apparently is a, a unique title for a Psalm. Some Psalms are called similar things. This stands alone as being called a Psalm for Giving Thanks. And it's not unique in a sense that it's a psalm designed to help us worship God. It was for the people of God for them to sing together. And we read in Ephesians about us as the New Testament people of God, as the New Covenant people of God, encouraged to, encouraged to sing together, to sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so this could easily come into that category, no problems at all. Now, if you've ever stood... In the midst of a worship time, maybe on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon or a Friday evening or any, any time of the week, with the people of God gathered around you, if you've ever stood there as people are passionately worshipping Jesus, as they're praising his name, as they're giving their all to worship him, and all you can think about is, have I locked the front door? Then this psalm encourages you. If you're the sort of person that in the midst of worship, sometimes, just maybe occasionally, you feel just a little bit tired. And therefore, it's a little bit more effort than you'd like it to be to raise your hands in worship or to sing songs wholeheartedly. I find it encouraging that psalms are specifically written to help us worship. The indication is this, that sometimes it's not necessarily that easy to worship. And we know, yes, God's always worthy of praise. But we live in a world and in a body that sometimes we're not helped by. And we need encouragement to worship and encouragement to praise. So, this psalm is designed to help us do that. This message, theoretically, should do the same thing. That's the plan. We'll see how we go. So let's read it together. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. What I would love to do, if we had about two hours, is go through this verse by verse and pick out every bit and encourage us to worship. Now, I don't think you have the grace for two hours. So, we're just gonna, I'm gonna pick out a few different aspects. It's not gonna be chronologically in terms of the psalm. We're not gonna go necessarily verse by verse. I'm just gonna pick out a few things that have struck me, which I hope will help us as a church to worship today and in ongoing weeks and months as well. But before we actually do that, I just want to make one point. This, this psalm, as the whole Bible does, makes an assumption. This is the assumption. We know God. This is directed at the people of God who have been chosen by him, brought in, into relationship with him, and who walk with him. Now, if you find worship difficult on an ongoing basis, if you find times of praise and thanksgiving taxing, Maybe, let me just suggest something. Maybe, maybe you don't know him, or maybe you don't know him that well. It's just a little thought. I don't know, have you ever had the situation where 
someone, it happens to me sometimes. When someone comes up to you and says, have you heard this new band? They are amazing. Their music is astounding. It moves me in ways I cannot describe in words. It's absolutely ridiculous. Their creativity is so inspiring. Have you heard of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we want to keep face. We say, yeah, I know them. Yeah, I'm down with the music. I'm down with the kids. I know that. And they say, what do you think about the first album track? It's nice, isn't it? Yeah, really nice. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic the way it starts. It just grabs hold of my soul and sends me into the stratosphere in terms of excitement and wonder at the music. And you're like, yeah, me too. Yeah. The difference between the first person and the second person is that first person knows the music and knows the song. So he's got words and emotions and descriptions that come and flow because he spent time listening. He spent time with that band and the music via a CD, perhaps. But me, keeping up face, trying to pretend that I'm down with the kids, actually, I don't really know know them that well. So I'll struggle with the words. I'll struggle to express how I feel. And it's just a little suggestion that perhaps, maybe, if you struggle, maybe you need to spend a bit more time with God. We know, we, we know the deal, don't we? The word is open to us, the inspired word of God. We get to hear what God has to say to us through that. We get to walk with him. It's a privilege. This is not a, oh no, we have to spend time with God. We get to spend time with God. Let's take full advantage of that. If we want to be those who worship, those who give ourselves to praise, we've got to be those who walk, those who know we are his sheep, those who hang around in the, the fields of God, those who know the great shepherd's voice. So that's the first point I really want to make. Now we're going to dip into and dig into this psalm. Where I want us to start really is with the fact that there is an invitation. There is a specific invitation. Like John was saying, God's saying, come after my presence. There's something in us that is hungry for him to go after him. But there is a specific invitation from the holy God to come in. There's a specific invitation for us to come and worship him. So it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. In verse 2 it says, come before him with joyful songs. This is the invitation of the psalmist, but the invitation is from God. He invites us to worship him. And our worship is not that which takes place from a distance. This is the wonderful news about the gospel. We don't worship God from a distance, though we should. We're invited in to worship him in his throne room. Let's turn to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verse 12. It's talking about Jesus. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The invitation comes to worship God in close proximity, not because we've impressed him or because we've got righteous acts. It's because we're in Christ. We're in the righteous one, the one whose blood has been shed and has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. So in order for us to worship well... We come into the presence of God. We enter in. And that's not necessarily about a feeling, though sometimes we sense that is the case. It's about a knowledge. It's about truth. It's about being convinced about what Jesus has done. He's invited us in. If you're anything like me and my wife, if you turn up our house 
with dirty, welly boots, we will ask you to take them off before you come in. We would like you to remove the dirt before you soil our house. That is basically the deal. Sorry about that. This is okay in terms of keeping your house clean. That's fine. This is not okay when it comes to worship and accessing the presence of God. You see, we often think, and I would suggest erroneously, wrongly, that we must deal with our sin before we enter in. The Word of God says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We don't approach God on our own basis. We approach on the basis of Jesus. So I may have had a rough week and messed up and not sorted myself out. But the primary way I approach God is not by focusing on my sin or getting down about myself. I enter into the presence of God because I'm in Christ. I think some people need more convincing about this. Let the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. How does Jesus teach us to pray? It's not, this isn't necessarily worship, but part of this prayer is worship. And part of it deals with sin. And what does it say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. No mention of sin yet. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I don't hear the word sin yet. On earth as it is in heaven, give us today our daily bread. Go on, flick the next one up, Steve. Just to prove it. Forgive us a debt as we also forgive our debtors. And so that talks about our sins right there. That point there. That's almost two-thirds of the way down. Jesus says, I'm going to teach you how to pray. I'm going to teach you how to talk to your Heavenly Father. He doesn't say, get on your knees and repent immediately. And then you can access the presence of God. He says, worship, hallowed be thy name. Father, we get to come into the intimate presence of God. The greatest trick and lie that the enemy can pull is this. By saying you're not good enough to get into the presence of God. The way you have lived your life this week means on Sunday morning when you raise your hands, you're a hypocrite. It's not true. Why is it not true? Because we're in Christ. So when you come this morning, if you've had a rough morning and... As you were getting ready, the family rushing out the door, you all shouted at each other in great chorus. You can come into the presence of God. You can come and worship Him. If this morning you were distracted totally on the way to this, this, this meeting, if for the whole week you've not even thought about God, you've not spent any time with Him, when you come together as the gathered people of God, we enter in into the presence of God through Christ in Him with freedom and with confidence. Getting hold of this fact alone will transform our personal and corporate worship times. Let's not be held back by our sin. We think deal with sin, Jesus says, come right in. Let's do it. Let's take full advantage of it. And for those who, when I said, I'm not too sure you know Jesus... This is the key thing to get hold of for you this morning. Jesus' cross sorts us out. Don't look around this room and think, wow, these guys have got themselves sorted out. We haven't. Jesus has sorted us out. We're all sinners. We've all got it wrong. We've all messed up. We've all got stories where we can say, this is how I sinned. This is how I got it wrong. This is how I'm not good enough. But we also can say this, Jesus has transformed my life. 
Jesus has taken away my sins as far as the east is from the west. How? By the wonderful and glorious cross of Christ. That's where it takes place. That's what sorts us out. That's where our punishment is dealt with. Instead of the wrath of God, we get the blessings and righteousness of Christ instead. And we'll say more about that later. What else does this psalm tell us? Well, we're encouraged twice in the same verse to do two things. We're encouraged to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, to give thanks to him and to praise in his name. A key to worship is thankfulness. A key to life is thankfulness. Apparently, there are 440 direct references to giving thanks in the Bible. I've not personally counted them all, but for me, that's quite a lot. And I'm guessing there's some indirect references. I'm guessing the Bible is placing some weight on the fact that giving thanks is important. We need to feel that way to make sure we're those who give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.13. Let's turn to that. Some encouragements. Let's pick out one or two of these 440 references. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says... Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. That means I don't have to know what state your life is in or what state your heart is in, but I can still encourage you this. Give thanks. Because it says in all circumstances we are to give thanks. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father in him. Saying the same things. In every situation, we give thanks. Why? Because God has done so much, is doing so much, will do so much, for us. Now, kids, got a little quiz for you. I'm going to describe somebody who lives in your house, and you have to tell me who he is. When you know who or she is, when you know who he or she is, then shout it out. They, this week, have cleaned a lot. They have cooked a lot, too. They have tidied. They may have even dressed you. They may have even wiped muck from your face regularly. They may have vacuumed. Who, who might that be? Isabel. Mummy. <laughs> In most households, that will probably be the case. That mum, this week, has spent a lot of time cooking and cleaning, vacuuming, all these sort of things. Now, kids, how many of you have said these two words to your mummy for all those things? Thank you. Oh, Ben Thomas reckons he has. Tracy, can we confirm this? Oh, are we have, is that a yes or a no from Tracy? It's debatable. In other words, your memory is questionable. It may have happened, it may not have done. But you've not received it in written form, for instance. No email or text. Nothing we can substantiate. Nothing solid. Okay. So, our suspicion is that this week... We've had mainly mums slaving away in the household, doing tons and tons of things, and they have been unthanked. 
Oh. Well, on behalf of all those people, including my wife, let, let me say thank you to you. Now, we, why is that the case? We can take what people do for granted. We can take what mums do for granted. How much more, therefore, do we take for granted what God has done, will do, and is doing in our lives? Here's the fact of the matter. The very air we breathe is a gift from God. Gravity itself is something we can thank God for. Or, right now, this would be a very messy situation. Some of you would be floating around on the roof. Thank God for gravity. Thank God for the beauty of creation. Thank God for friends. Thank God for a house over your head. Thank God for food. Thank God for family. Thank God for, for friends. There is so much we can thank God for in all circumstances. Whatever you do, give thanks. It's a great and helpful thing. It's also the antidote to today's, many of today's ills. So we look around at society, we look into our own hearts even, and we see greed and selfishness and ingratitude. Thankfulness undoes these. When we say thank you, we, we focus more on the things we have than on the things that we want. When we say thank you, we focus on other people rather than on ourselves. When we say thank you, we become those who are grateful rather than those who are ungrateful. This is a much more appropriate way to enter the courts of God by saying thank you. Not focusing on our sin, but thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Lord. What else do we see in the psalm? Verse 1. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Joy and gladness in worship. I'm sorry, Mr. Psalm writer. You've not quite understood my situation. I'm, I'm sorry you've not actually realized what we've been through as a church this year. I'm sorry my personal circumstances have ripped the joy out of my life. I'm afraid your encouragement is illegitimate and inappropriate. Can we say that? Is it appropriate to say that? Can we contradict what the psalmist is saying? Let's have a look under the core passages in the New Testament. James 1, 2. James 1, verse 2 says this. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. The logic in that passage is about our character being developed as God works through us in those things. Consider it pure joy. Philippians 4, 4. Philippians 4 verse 4 says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again. Rejoice. Always is a word that captures every situation, every time, and every place. There's no, there's no situations that are exempt from that word. The New Testament writers encourage the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
And I'll say it again, rejoice. How does that work? Well, you may or may not know it today. This is going to be slightly tangential, but I'll bring us back in in a second. It's Sarah Durant's birthday. But Sarah Durant is in Devon, holidaying, so she's unable to receive the gift that I have lovingly and caringly wrapped and purchased for her. This is a sad state of affairs, I think you'll agree. But fortunately, there is another Sarah here, I think, who'll be willing to take this gift on her behalf. And I'd just like to invite Sarah Cutting um, as, her, as Sarah Durant's substitute. She's going to come up. And this, I don't, want, I don't want to big it up too much, but this wonderful, amazing gift that I'm going to give her. Would you like to come here, Sarah? Come up with me, love. If you just stand here and open it, and uh, we'll just watch your face as you look at <laughs> the uh, wonderful present that I've bought you. Yeah, it's very delicate. And from there. Save the paper for later, that's it. Yeah, don't, don't rip. Don't rip. Yeah, you might have to rip, actually. Uh, yeah. Right. Exciting. Exciting. Look, look. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, it's a Tupperware box. No. Don't worry. There's something inside. I, that would be horrible to do with it, to buy a Tupperware box for Sarah for her birthday. <laughs> What's inside, Sarah? Do you know what that is? It's a fuse. <laughs> this is no ordinary fuse. This is a fuse that doesn't even work. <laughs> How much joy are you feeling right now, Sarah? Not a lot of joy. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can you just muster some joy up? N- no, you can't. There's a proper present for you. Thank you very much indeed. If you'd like to step down. Well done, Sarah. The psalmist is not saying, the New Testament writers are not saying, when you get a naff present, when life is naff, you don't summon up from nowhere this joy. If you've got a naff present, you've got a naff present, and we have to say it's naff. I've got a fuse that doesn't even work for my birthday. What kind of present is that? There's no joy in that. This is what 1 Peter 1, 8 to 9 says. I was going to use this passage anyway, but it was also part of what I was reading this morning, is the system that I go through. So I feel this is a weighty and helpful verse for us as a church. There's 1 Peter 1, verses 8 to 9. We'll wait until it comes on the screen. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For we are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We don't muster up joy by looking at our naff and unhelpful and difficult circumstances and pretending that they are joyful in themselves. We are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy because we're receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. When we focus on our circumstances, joy will not flow. When we focus on the negative emotions that we're feeling, joy will not flow. Peter's saying, we are filled with joy because we are saved. Because Jesus has chosen us, as Dave so wonderfully interpreted that tongue. 
God has called us, made us his own. He's done a significant transformation in our life that has taken us from the point of death to the point of eternal life. Of course, if we focus on our circumstances, there's no joy. If we focus on him, we're filled with inexpressible joy. Galatians 5.22 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit, one of those is joy. We focus on him and we ask him to fill us with his joy. We don't work it up. We don't receive kind of a broken fuse and try and get as much joy as possible out of that tiny little present. Well, at least the thought, it's the thought that counts, isn't it? No. We get hold of what God has done. We get hold of what he says. And then joy rises up. It's not a false joy, not a worked up joy, but the joy of the Holy Spirit that comes from God is a gift from him. And that increases and expands as we get hold of more of what he's done for us. Thankfulness forces us to look at him. And this makes it far more likely that joy will rise up and our worship both personally and corporately as a church will be more joyful and more filled with gladness. And this is exactly how the psalmist finishes off this psalm. This is exactly how we are going to spend the rest of our time here. Because at verse 5, the word for, F-O-R, is introduced. And here the psalmist gives us three wonderful reasons for glorifying, for worshipping, for thanking, for praising him. And for the reasons that joy may rise up and joyful and glad worship may come out of our lips. So let's focus on those things. So what does he say? For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generation. The Lord is good. We need to be convinced that the Lord is good, that God is good. If we are not convinced of this fact, I would suggest that praising God is a more difficult task. If questions are around God's goodness, then worship will not flow as easily from our lives and from our lips. We need to be convinced that God is good, not mostly good, not sometimes good, not good just six days of the week, but one day of the week he's not. He's good all the time. He's completely absent of evil. He has never even considered sinning. He is light and no darkness resides in him. He's absolutely perfect. He has never erred or made a mistake or had a bad day. He never slacks off. He's never selfish. He doesn't get bored with us. His attention span is infinite. He understands everything. He understands you and all that you are going through. He gets you. He gets your life. He gets this world. He made the world and it was good. And his good plans are to bring all the people he has made good through Christ to a good heaven where in perfect good relationship with him, they will sing praises to our good God. God is good. The enemy will try and convince us that the opposite was true. He will try and convince us that perhaps, maybe, sometimes God is not good. In the garden, to Adam and Eve, he says, 
did God really say? And to us today, he might just utter, is God really good all the time? As we read the word of God, the resounding answer is this. Yes, he is good all the time. And in this world, we live with the consequences of sin. It's a fallen world. Life is difficult sometimes. Life is hard. This does not contradict the goodness of God. Because he has brought about our salvation. He has pursued us and adopted us into his family. He has secured for us an eternal relationship with him. And all these things far outweigh any of the difficulties we may face. God is good. And all these things he has done because of his love. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. The word love here in Hebrew is translated in many different ways throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes loving kindness, sometimes mercy. But one of the best translations I've heard comes in this one here. Has anyone got this book? Sarah Samaniego is the only one here. Come on, there must be more. Who's got this? Jesus Storybook Bible. Jonathan Smith has got it. Lots of people have got it. In fact, it, I just realized half of you people can't see it because your eyesight's awful. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. Who's got the Jesus Storybook Bible? Okay, about half the people here. This, instead of using one word to convey this word in Hebrew that is translated love or mercy or loving kindness, it uses a series of words and it causes, it calls it this, the never stopping. Never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I think it's a great way to approach it. When English is no good at translated one word, word to word, just bung a load of others in anyway. But even those, or how many words are there? Eight words? They don't get close to conveying the love of God for us. John 3.16 tells us this famous passage, For God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish or die, but have eternal life. Eternal life and salvation come only because Jesus was sent. Jesus only came because God loved us. Without God's love, we are absolutely nowhere. But what is this love like? How can we understand this love? This may be a very simple illustration, but hopefully it'll help us get hold of a little aspect, a small amount of what God's love is like. I need a volunteer who is able... Oh, there. Will Smith, straight in. Come on. Well done. I have two items in front of me. One of them is a piece of blue tack. Other adhesive tacks are available. And this is a magnet. It's a lovely little heart magnet. It's quite pretty, isn't it? Right. Where, where's that going to stick? Go and find somewhere for it to stick, Will. He's searching for metal. Searching for metal. Found the metal radiator. Stick. Brilliant. Try sticking it to that wood over there. Try sticking it there. Stick it on there. Oh, try a bit harder. Come on, stick it on again. Try it. Oh, it's not working, is it? Okay, bring that one back to me then, William. 
Try a bit of blue tack. Try it in the same ones. Try it on the radiator and then try it on the, the wood and see what happens. For those blocked by the pillar, I'll describe it for you. William's walking towards the radiator. He's placing the blue tack on the radiator. The blue tack is stuck to the radiator. William's now taking the blue tack off the radiator, moving towards the wooden panels. He puts the blue tack on the wooden panels and it sticks. The blue tack is stuck to the panel. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you. You are a wonderful assistant. I would like to have my blue tack back. It's very expensive blue tack. Don't go off and seal it. Thank you very much indeed. Well done. I think, we think, God's love is more like a magnet in the sense that it depends on what it is attaching itself to as whether it sticks. You know, if, if I'm metallic enough, God's love might come to me. If I've done enough things right, if I've lived my life in a good way, maybe God's love will attach to me. God's love is like more like blue tack. This is so pathetic, isn't it? The amazing love of God being compared to blue tack. But I do think it's helpful. In the sense that the blue tack just says, I'm sticky. I'm really sticky. I love sticking. I just want to stick. I want to stick to things. The magnet says, you need to be something for me to stick to you. The blue tack says, no, 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 no. You don't need to be anything. I will stick to you. So it just goes anywhere. It'll even stick to people. Please don't let that be the only thing you remember, that Ben stuck blue tack to his head. What is the serious and actually quite deep point I'm trying to make here? God's love God's love is loving. God's love, God loves because he loves. So he doesn't look at you and think, right, ooh. How far up are this? Are they reached into the point where they're lovable? Ooh, not yet. I'll hold the love away. They're not quite ready yet. No, he says, I love you. Not because of anything you've done. And again, Dave's interpretation was so in line with this sense of God saying, I choose you. I love you. Not by merit. Not by what you've done. Not because of the things that you've achieved. Not because of your holiness. Not because you've even combed your hair so well this morning. No, I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. There is no explanation of salvation except the love of God caused by nothing save this self-generating love of his. Not called forth by us, but emanating from him. We do not call down the love of God. Nothing in us attracts God's love. We don't shout louder and suddenly the love of God comes to us. It's the self-emanating love of God that comes from him. He generates it and sends it out to those he loves. Not because they're lovable, but because he is loving. And this is both humbling and encouraging because it's got nothing to do with us. We like to think that if we've had a good week, God loves us more. Rubbish! doesn't love you more. Or if we had a bad week, actually, if we like a bit of self-pity, we like to convince ourselves that God loves us a little bit less. Rubbish! You can have the worst week of your life and God's love for you is still that never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It stays it sticks. It's not dependent upon us. It's only dependent on the fact that he is loving. And thank God, 
He is a loving God who loves us, and this love endures forever. As does his faithfulness, which continues through all generations. I think we undervalue the word faithful. Let me demonstrate how. Two ways. If I say the word faithful, what do you think of first of all? Dog. Nespa? Yeah? Dogs are faithful. That's what we think. And so, oh, God's like a dog. Great. That's not faithful. The other thing we think, if, we, if you've got a friend, and so, or you, you're speaking to someone and said, oh, yeah, I've got this friend. He's, they're very faithful. It's, like, it's, not, it's, kind of, it's kind of like an underhand insult, really, in the sense that you can't think of anything better to say about them that than that they're faithful. Let's, that is not what the psalmist is saying here. I can't think of anything better to say than God is faithful. That'll do. I think God's like a dog. That's not what he's saying. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This speaks of a covenantal, promise-keeping, forever God. This speaks of a God that never, ever changes. He's committed to loving us, and he's committed to not changing that love. He's committed to our salvation. He's committed to his glory. He is faithful. He will see those things through. This means that he is the only thing ever that can be relied upon. Everything else that we may think we can trust, we cannot trust completely, 100%. Because they will fall away. They may not live up to expectations. Or they might change. God is unchanging, unswerving, reliable, and totally immovable. He is our anchor and our hope, and he is totally and utterly faithful to all generations. This means that as God was to Adam, he was to Moses. As God was to Moses, he was to David. As he was to David, he was to Jesus. He was to Jesus, he was to Paul. As he was to Paul, he was to the early church. As he was to the early church, he was to our great-great-grandparents. As he was to our grandparents and our parents, as he is to us. As God is to us. He will be to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. This love that endures, this good God, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can totally and utterly rely on him. We can give ourselves to him because he is faithful and trustworthy. All generations will find him to be the same, wonderful, glorious, majestic, good, loving, and faithful God. He does not change. He was always worthy of praise. He is deserving of our thanks and gratitude. He will always deserve all honor, power, glory, and worship forever. This psalm, Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. It was written that the people of God might come together and glorify God more effectively. This message this morning, I hope, has galvanized us as a church to come together and to worship God more effectively. Not so that we might feel better about ourselves 
but that he might get the glory he deserves. And maybe you're still chewing over this, oh, maybe I'm not mustering up enough joy in worship. Or maybe you're still chewing over, but what about my sin? What about my sin? How do I get into the presence of God? I'm in Christ, but I still feel so sinful. Maybe you're chewing, maybe you're chewing over other things that I've said. But as we finish, as we respond, as we sing, as we worship, this has to be the center and the focus of what we do. God, his goodness, his enduring love and mercy, and his faithfulness. Please, can we have the band up actually, be good. Please, let us not focus on our response. Let's not even focus on how we feel about that. That's less important than focusing on what he has done and who he is. The temptation can be to think that the best worship times are when we feel most worshipful. And in some senses, I get that. But if you don't feel worshipful, that can sometimes move us away from actually focusing on him, which is what worship is. So we're not going to focus on ourselves. We're not going to focus on our feelings. We're going to give ourselves to worshiping this good, faithful, and loving God. So if you'd like to stand... We're going to do that straight away.